meditation and the Eightfold Path. So what is the Eightfold Path? The Eightfold Path is um, our prescription to the end of suffering. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And what we find in the Eightfold Path is that three of the path factors deal with meditation. And, and uh, concentration, mindfulness, and letting go. So when we're talking about right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, when we come to right effort, what we're talking about is the mind. And it goes like this. Number one, right effort to abandon unskillful thoughts that have arisen. Right effort to prevent unskillful thoughts from arising. Explanation. Unskillful thought. Greed, hatred, and delusion. Greed, hatred, and delusion. Attachment, aversion, and ignorance. Then we want to maintain skillful thoughts once they've arisen and create skillful thoughts that have not yet arisen. Skillful thought, generosity, compassion, and wisdom. Generosity, compassion, and wisdom. So we abandon the unskillful, we prevent the unskillful from arising, we create the skillful and once they've arisen in our mind, we hold the skillful thoughts there. So that's the first step of the meditation process in the Eightfold Path, right effort. Then we have right mindfulness and right concentration. Now my understanding is that the Buddha was taught how to meditate by the yogis of India. And they did concentration. They did samatha meditation. And in doing the samatha meditation, or the concentration meditation, what we found was this, that they would, okay, something happened. Can you still hear me out there? Uh, yeah, okay. I'm going to keep talking, and um, yes. is, it's working okay? Okay, let me get my view here gallery. Okay, here we go. So, the Siddhartha Gautama, the historical Buddha, was taught concentration exercises to go into deep states of samadhi, samatha, tranquility, one-pointedness. And, and we can use the model of the four jhanas. There's actually a model of the eight jhanas as well, but we're going to use the four jhanas to describe the concentration meditation that the historical Buddha did. Number one, we would go and sit quietly in our meditation posture, whether it be on the ground or in a chair, cross-legged or otherwise, and we would bring the attention, our attention, to the sensation of breath. One of the ways to do samatha meditation, the sensation of breath. Applied thought, sustained thought. We would hold it there. We'd apply 
our attention and we would hold it there. Then we had applied thought, sustained thought, happiness, bliss, and equanimity. Now, the difference between happiness and bliss, as I understand it, is that the bliss has to do with physical pleasure and happiness has to do with a mental state. So when we're happy mentally, we don't necessarily need to be physically in pleasure and vice versa. So we concentrate, we focus on the sensation of breath in this particular meditation, and we have pleasure of the body arising, and we have happiness of mind arising, and then we have the most important aspect, which would be balance or equanimity. Balance of mind would arise at that same time too. Now, the meditator would look at the pleasure and the happiness and the equanimity and would see that the pleasure of the body is disturbing the peace of mind that he or she is trying to attain. They would then work out a system to let go of the pleasure. Now, when I say that, it's not denying pleasure, it's not preventing pleasure, but the meditator would say, I am going to let go of my attachment to pleasure. My attachment to pleasure. And in finding a workaround, they're able to let go of their attachment to pleasure, and pleasure just hangs around for a while, and then it disappears, because there's no reason to hold on to it or keeping it keep it any longer than it's supposed to be there. Okay, without the pleasure, the mind becomes more peaceful, and then we have two more things to deal with, happiness and equanimity. Now, whereas the pleasure was like throwing a boulder into a quiet forest pond, happiness is like throwing a pebble into a quiet forest pond. The ripples are much smaller and, and they don't aggravate the peace of mind quite as much as the pleasure did, but it still distorts, it still distorts our reality. In the same way, if you were looking in a quiet forest pond and looking at your reflection, even throwing a pebble in there would create little ripplets which would distort the reflection. And that's what the happiness is doing. It's distorting our experience of the world around us. So the meditator would say, I am trying to attain peace. I don't want to be distracted by happiness. I need to let go of my attachment to happiness. And when I finally am able to do that, I'll be able to see the world in a much more realistic way, without the physical pleasure, without the mental happiness. The meditator finds a workaround, is able to let go of the attachment to happiness. When happiness has served its purpose, it falls away. And now we have one characteristic left, which is equanimity, balance, peace of mind. And we reside in that. We stay there and we keep our focus on the sensation of breath 
and we go deeper and deeper into one-pointedness. And now the only thing that exists in our mind is balance, peace, peace of mind. The gong rings, we come out of our meditation, we start to feel a little bit lighter, a little bit more transparent than we did before we went into our meditation. The happiness, the sadness, the pleasure, the pain, the equanimity all come back and take their places as they did before but they're not quite as severe. So each time we meditate, we're actually making progress. We're able to to come back a little bit lighter and a little bit wiser and see the world in a little more realistic way each time. Now, when I talked about letting go of the attachment to pleasure, the other side of pleasure is pain. And what we want to do is we want to let go of the aversion to pain. So we let go of our attachment to pleasure and our aversion to pain. Now, if you've meditated for any length of time, you realize that pain ultimately arises, or at least a subtle discomfort in the body because of the sitting posture and the time spent in that posture. And our first reaction would be to move and and break that cycle of pain and come to a place of comfort. But every meditator knows that comfort is hard won and, and is lost so easily that it comes and it goes. In the same way pain comes and goes. In the same way pleasure comes and goes. So there's a certain level of acceptance after you've meditated for a while that allow you to have the pleasurable experiences of your meditation practice and not be attached to it. And it also allows you to have the pain or discomfort of your meditation practice and not have aversion to it. Now, the other side of happiness is sadness. And if we can figure out a way to let go of our attachment to happiness, we might succeed in letting go of our aversion to sadness. And when those mind states, mind states arise, we simply sit with them. We simply let them arise, exist, and pass away. We no longer need to be that person who's feeling the pain or discomfort, it simply becomes pain and discomfort. We no longer need to be the person feeling the pleasure and happiness. It's simply pleasure and happiness arising, existing, and passing away. We don't need to identify it with it any longer as our meditation practice goes through the days, weeks, and months. Now, this may all sound um, rather fanciful. Uh, It may all sound unrealistic, but anybody who's meditated for any length of time will have experienced all these mind states. And, And ultimately, our goal 
in this samatha meditation, in this this tranquility meditation, is to come to a place of realization. And the realization we want to have is this. We want to experience the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena. That is our goal in samatha meditation, in tranquility meditation, according to me. The ultimate reality in Buddhism is often defined as interconnectedness and interdependence. And when we finally achieve that level, we have come home in a very special and realistic way. That we are no longer separate and suffering in the way we did. We are now interconnected and feel the, the comfort of, of community of the cosmos. We are no longer afraid in the way we used to be when we were separate. Now, I call that experience, and this is my own idea of it, I call that experience enlightenment. That that to me would be the enlightenment experience. And it comes, and it goes away, and it comes, and it goes away. But every time it happens to us, it reminds us about the ultimate reality talked about in Buddhism. And in the Mahayana tradition, they call it emptiness. Now, that can be misleading unless you think of it in this way. Empty of independent existence. Empty of independent existence. That we have never existed independently. That is the feature that the ego uh, shines on the world around us. The ego makes us separate because we need to be able to use the environment in order to stay alive and exist. And we can't use that environment if we are one with it. So we need to be separate from it. We need to be separate from the door so we can enter and exit. We need to be separate from the car so we can drive it and park it. We need to be separate in most of the things that we do. But this spiritual practice now is giving us a chance to reconnect with the world in a very special way. Now, the last part is mindfulness. There's four kinds of mindfulness. Mindfulness of the mind, mindfulness of mental objects, mindfulness of sensations, mindfulness of the body. I'm going to talk about mindfulness of sensations as a way of introducing vipassana meditation. And my first teacher, Shinzen Young, used to talk about the scanning method that you would start at the top of your head and go to the tip of your toes and back up to the top of your head. And you would be looking for sensations in the body or in the mind. And it's not as complicated as it sounds because we only have three sensations, according to Buddhism. We have the sensation that's pleasant, We have the sensation that's unpleasant, and we have the sensation that's neutral. And because it's a neutral sensation, we don't spend a lot of time with it. It doesn't catch our attention, and we generally just pass it by. We're more concerned about the sensation of 
pleasure or happiness or the sensation of pain or discomfort or unhappiness. And we would simply stop at those sensations. Say we had a sore knee from sitting on the floor and we would find it as being uncomfortable. And we would simply note that we had an uncomfortable sensation. We wouldn't go any further into it. We wouldn't diagnose it. We wouldn't say that's good or bad. We'd simply notice that we have an unpleasant sensation. And then we continue scanning and go to the next one and the next one and the next one. So after 15 or 20 minutes of scanning, we've probably discovered quite a few sensations, both physical and mental, both pleasant and unpleasant. And now we would use the next part of our meditation practice to reflect on the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom that would allow us to understand sensations in a very wise and practical way. So the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom are anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, suffering, and not-self. So let's use the sore knee as one of the sensations we're going to investigate. And we would say, is this sore knee impermanent? And we'd have to say, yeah, it is impermanent because it doesn't stay the same very long. It either gets worse and makes us feel like we're going to die, or it gets better and we feel that we have passed through the worst part of it. But it does not stay the same. So the sore knee is our teacher, and it explains to us in a very subtle and nonverbal way that impermanence is part of our world. And then we would take that understanding, that bit of wisdom, and apply it to the world around us, and we would say, is everything in the world impermanent? And we would look around, and we'd see the weather, absolutely impermanent. We'd, we look at the Super Bowl today, absolutely impermanent. We would look at our life, absolutely impermanent. We'd look at our car, but we can get insurance to fix it, but absolutely impermanent. Everything in our life is subject to change without notice. And we would then take that to heart and say, I understand at at least a relative level and maybe an ultimate level that all I come into contact with, my experience in life, is impermanent. Now, we continue with the sore knee and we'd say, is life ultimately suffering? And you would say to yourself, well, you know, it's ultimately suffering for a little while, that my knee is going to hurt until the gong rings and I'm able to stretch out my legs and not have to feel the pain any longer. So the suffering is there. And then you look at the pleasurable experiences and you'd say, well, gosh, there's no suffering at all in these pleasurable experiences. I don't know if that second aspect of Buddhist wisdom is really true. And then you would have to apply that first aspect of Buddhist wisdom, impermanence, and you'd say, yes, even the pleasurable stuff that makes me so happy and satisfied is ultimately unsatisfactory because it has to change. That no matter how hard I cling or hold on to it, it will be taken away from me. It'll be ripped out of my life and replaced with dissatisfaction. And you go, oh man, so 
we've got two down. We understand now that all life, everything in our life is impermanent. We also understand that everything in our life is ultimately unsatisfactory because even the good stuff changes and there's nothing we can do about it. And third is the fact that we do not exist in the way we think we do. And we would say, okay, is it not self? Is it no self? And after meditating for a while, we would say, well, no, it's not no self because there is a a mechanism there. There is something there that creates my personal identity that keeps me separate and allows me to live in this very complicated world. So I can't say there is no self, but I can say after weeks, months, or years of meditation that not self better describes it because I don't have to be that. I don't have to be that self. There is a transcendence mechanism that allows me to go past the limited self and come to that place of ultimate reality, interdependence, interconnection, that allows me to function in a much more wise and compassionate way. The self is designed to keep me alive It's designed to prevent me from dying any sooner than I have to. It's designed to allow me to to exist through work and career and family. That, that, That self is so important. I can't say it's not, but I can say after years of meditation that maybe I don't have to be that self. Maybe that self arises when it's necessary for it to arise, but maybe there are plenty of times during the day when there is a not-self experience, a direct experience of the world around us in that very special way. That is what the Buddha rediscovered, mindfulness meditation. Those three aspects of Buddhist wisdom are liberating and ultimately will allow us to go beyond enlightenment, according to me, and achieved our, achieve our final destination, which is nirvana, the end of suffering, the end of all future rebirths, and the end of karma. So you can see that one can lead to the next one, or one doesn't have to lead to the next one. One can simply stay with enlightenment be a bodhisattva, reduce the suffering in the world, or one can achieve nirvana and be an arhant and never have to be reborn again. It's up to you what you want to do, but the secret in doing it is practice. We need to practice the Eightfold Path. We need to practice the three aspects found on the Eightfold Path of Meditation, and that will liberate us and we'll find a place where we can suffer less and ultimately end our suffering altogether.